Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Dangerous Exponents, a coronavirus COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman. I am one of your hosts, and with me is the other half of Dangerous Exponents, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Um, Carl and I like to start every episode with the reminder that we are not professionals. We are not epidemiologists. We are not public health officials, though we do think we're relatively intelligent and we spend a lot of time researching and thinking about these issues. So hopefully we can distill some of this stuff using our analytical skills to create something useful that uh, will we'll shed some light on some of these issues for you. So you can go back on dangerousexponents.com and see our first six episodes on, on various topics within the, the pandemic. And today's episode, we wanted to focus on partly on the new variants, the mutations of, of COVID-19 that have developed and the implications thereof. And closely related to that, we want to talk a little bit about the vaccine rollout. We'll probably have more episodes in the future about, uh, about the vaccine rolling out across the world and the challenges involved in that. But it definitely ties in both to the mutation issue and it's what's in the news right now. So it's it's what we're thinking about and probably what, what you are concerned about as well, if you're interested enough to listen to this podcast. So jumping right in, this uh, new mutation, and I'm using that term pretty approximately because there are various mutations, some of, some of which have mutated in similar ways to each other. So for instance, the mutation in South Africa is similar to the mutation in the UK, but they're not technically the same. They just have some of the same characteristics. But focusing on this B117 mutation in the UK that has, has seemed to increase transmissibility of the disease so much, uh, let's start where, we, where I always like to start, which is putting some numbers on these things. So Carl, we know that this, well, we seem to know that this mutation is much more transmissible than, than previous mutations or, or pre-mutation versions of the, the disease. Do you have a sense of how much more we're talking about here? The early estimates seem to have held up pretty well, which is that it's about 50% to 70% more transmissible. And I, I haven't seen that put directly into units of R, which is basically the number of people on average that any one person who's infected will, will spread the virus to, will pass on the infection to. But I, from from what I've read about it, I think you can pretty directly say that R would increase by 50% to 70% if the virus is 50% to 70% more transmissible. Does that sound right to you? That is intuitively correct to me. I have not seen a lot of people explicit, explicitly saying that, and I have seen a reference to R increasing by 0.4. Um, the, the, the reasoning for that wasn't wasn't explicit either. So I'm not sure whether somehow those numbers are related, but it seems, yeah, intuitive the, the, that a 50% increase in transmissibility means a 0.5 increase in R, holding everything else constant, of course. And that's always the big if with this sort of thing is as soon as people start hearing about the mutation, then their behavior changes, which affects RT. So, so that's a factor as well. And, and one of the things that was that public health officials were saying from the beginning is, well, the beginning of this mutation is it doesn't seem like this mutation is more deadly or that it's in terms of the the effect on a given person who's infected, it's, it's not much different from the original at all. Is that right? That's right. It doesn't seem to cause a more severe form of illness, which is highly correlated to how likely the illness is to kill uh, the person infected. That, that doesn't seem to go up either. 
And not only was that stated by public health officials, but it was often cited by some of them, by researchers, by the journalists quoting them as reason not to panic, which I think has become a, a sort of red herring or a straw man in this pandemic and, and in this kind of coverage. It's never helpful really to panic and, and to lose your mind over something, but does that mean that this is a really big deal? Could it be a really big deal, even if it's not more deadly? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, that's the big issue. And, and it, it comes back to exponents. We might even say dangerous exponents that if, if, if the virus becomes more deadly, then that's a problem. I mean, a lot of people are getting the virus right now. A lot more people will get the virus. And if more of those people have more severe cases, then that's bad. It's really bad. But it's if the virus isn't more deadly, but it is 50% more transmissible, then that's actually worse, isn't it? I mean, the power of exponents comes into play. And even if it's not more deadly on a case-by-case basis, the the number of people affected and the number of people who will have serious cases, um, that gets bad fast, doesn't it? It does. And it it means also that the kind of... Uh, worst case scenario that we've seen in a few places, including New York last spring and, and Italy just before it, or parts of Italy just before it, could come into effect sooner and in, in a worse way in more places, which is hospitals overflowing and, and basically people not being able to get adequate care or in some cases not getting care at all, uh, including for other needs from the medical system that would normally be served and just can't be. So it could actually make the virus more deadly because there are fewer defenses against it because they are so taxed uh, so much faster than people expected. Right. That's a good point that, that there's two factors, well, probably way more, but there's at least two factors that make a, a virus deadly. One is the virus itself and mutations could conceivably change that, but one is the virus itself. The other one is the level of care that's available. I mean, certain diseases are, are, are much more deadly in the third world than they are in the first world um, just because of the care available. And yeah, if, if the health systems start overflowing, then fewer ventilators, fewer monoclonal antibodies, fewer solutions of every kind. And that in itself could be a problem. Just the sheer numbers, which are already pushing some health systems to the breaking point could be even worse. So the, we first started hearing about all this coming from an outbreak in Kent in, in England. And it, it seems to me that that's, that's where it's very a very early stage of this particular B117 mutation. We're also hearing about the similar mutation in South Africa that's causing a lot of problems with the, the young population there. Uh, but we also know that a number of the of cases with this mutation have turned up in Denmark. Um, I think there's been at least one in Col- found in Colorado, one found in California, and that was a week ago. And those were people with no travel history. So it seems like the mutation is taking hold. Uh, do you think we have a good idea of how widespread it is at all? I mean, I can cite some examples, and I just have. We know the UK and Denmark have have some of the best. Uh, the best infrastructure for surveillance, for actually sequencing the, the mutations, identifying where they happen. And the US isn't great at that. I mean, in terms of the numbers there of, of sequencing examples and the speed at which they turn them around. So, I mean, do we even know? Should we be taking more action based on a mutation that we're just sort of 
inferring is probably widespread, even where we don't know that it is? Yeah, I think a lot of this is a painful flashback to the start of the pandemic where we didn't have good numbers on uh, not specific mutations, but just the virus itself. And there were scary findings of new cases in people who hadn't been traveling recently. And those, in retrospect, were signals that the actual number of people infected was much higher, uh, were much higher in many places than we knew. And that often what looked like places that were not being hit as hard were just places that didn't have as good surveillance. So, I mean, a lot of those general uh, kind of concerns apply now. And there's really no reason, unfortunately, there's really no reason to have much optimism given the, the rate at which this mutation has spread in the UK, especially, and then the South Africa mutation has spread in South Africa and, and the level of travel outside from those countries uh, during the period when it was spreading, it just seems unrealistic to expect that this will will stay isolated for long. In fact, it's unlikely. To, it seems unlikely to me that any places outside of the very few countries that have pretty much kept all cases at or near zero will be able to keep these mutations out. Yeah, I think that's all. That's all right. And one one really dramatic example we saw of that, or one example you can see of that is scientists have, have done a very thorough job tracking the growth of an earlier mutation, the, the D614G, I think. Um, it's tough to get random sequences of numbers and letters committed to memory, but D614G is the mutation that became dominant in the early spread of the virus. So it, it, it I think I, if I understand correctly, it wasn't dominant in the early outbreaks in China, but it is the one that seeded the outbreaks in Northern Italy and, and New York and became dominant around the world. And the New York Times had this feature maybe six weeks ago, and we can include it in the show notes that that showed via a series of maps how fast this one mutation went from something we think of as just a a mutation, but because it was it was easier to spread, um, it became dominant. And we can look at that over the course of several months now because th- this happened pretty early on in the process, almost a year ago. Uh, but it seems to me that given given the numbers that that earlier mutation, the D614G, was 10 to 20 percent more likely to spread, whereas this one seems to be a lot higher. I mean, should we expect the same thing? Is the whole world going to be swamped by B117 and its its close relatives um, in in a few months? There's certainly a reproductive advantage for these variants if they're more contagious, more transmissible. So I think we, we very well could see it spread and, and overtake some of the some of the other types of of COVID-19. As that happens, we'll learn more, like we'll learn, is it really the same level of severity and deadliness? Is it really as as additionally transmissible as we thought? And and the answers to those questions could affect kind of its its um, relative advantage. Uh, and you know, I think that we can already see just sort of crudely, if we're, if we're assuming that, in fact, we haven't detected all the cases of these variants, uh, we can see some places where we think they're already there and we can see the sharp upturn in cases, including in South Africa and the UK and in specific parts, especially as, as kind of a sign of, of what could be to come. So should we be concerned about other mutations developing? I mean, the virus should 
in theory, it should select for more transmissible mutations, right? I mean, this is this is a, a dumb non-scientist interpretation of biology 101 that it will mutate. Um, it will mutate randomly, but the certain mutations will be advantageous. Certain among them will spread faster or uh, or, or spread in different ways. I mean, it, it, is this just going to be sort of a game of whack-a-mole between now and when we reach some acceptable level of, of vaccine coverage where maybe we'll figure out how to deal with this one, but then in a couple months, we'll be having the same conversation again. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we've been fortunate that it hasn't already been been so. There have been lots of mutations as expected, but but most of them didn't seem to significantly alter the the sort of main characteristics of the virus and the immune response and everything else. Uh, now that you know cases have been rising internationally, we we haven't really stemmed. Uh, the the flow of the virus, especially in places now in the winter, um, it's it's just clear that there there are so many hosts in which the virus could be mutating, um, and that 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 certainly hasn't helped matters. And while these mutations so far seem like the most dangerous ones, it is conceivable that you could have mutations that require a, an alteration to the vaccine. So, you know, we'll talk more about the vaccine, but we've barely gotten it into any people so far, and we might need to get a different one into people somewhere down the line. There is the possibility of variants that are that cause more severe di- disease and death, which potentially would have some difficulty spreading because hosts, you need hosts that are able to spread to, to other people for the uh, for the the version of the virus to to survive and spread, but there could be some point at which it it is able to continue spreading, but still be even more dangerous to the people who get it. So there are all sorts of scary scenarios. We should learn something from the fact that this is what we have so far after over a year of this being out there and infecting people. So so maybe that tells us something about the pace. Of change, but certainly frightening that that the virus is so widespread that just gives so many opportunities for for more mutations to develop and more dangerous ones to to dominate. Yeah, one interesting report I read about this was that the mutations. This is kind of speculation. There have been papers about it, but it's it's far from proven that the mutations are more likely to develop in people who are already immunosuppressed, so people who have other probably serious conditions because for, for most healthy people, if, if you get COVID-19, it's going to be in your system for a few days and you're going to be able to fight it off. It goes away. So it doesn't have that much time to, to do anything. I mean, it it doesn't have a host with which to mutate, but someone who's immunosuppressed might take considerably longer, maybe by a factor of two or three more time to fight off the, the virus, and in that time, the virus is able to mutate. Uh, it seems like there's a greater risk there, but I, I wonder what the usefulness of that information is. I mean, it's useful in the sense that the better we understand the virus, the better off we are. I, I don't question that at all. But if if we know that mutations are are more likely in immunosuppressed people, is there is there something that should be done in response to that? Well, getting 
immunosuppressed people vaccinated could become a higher priority. I think in, in practice, it's really difficult to to find all people who are immunosuppressed. It's not it's not a category that's um, living in certain places or you know has certain demographics necessarily. So uh, it, it wouldn't be by any means a perfect sweep, but we're finding that any sort of vaccination guidelines are, are rough and, and not necessarily getting to the people they're targeting anyway. So uh, you could, I, I could certainly see a case for that if that really is likely to give, uh, to give rise to more mutations. And I suppose that what countries are doing already uh, prioritizing the elderly is probably your best first order approximation of immunosuppressed people. I mean, obviously it's very, very crude, but but you're right. We, we can't go door to door and, and, and say, hey, how immunosuppressed are you? And if the, uh, if the amount is above a threshold, then give them a vaccine. But if you start with, with 80 year olds and work your way down, then you're that might be the best way of doing it. And that has has benefits for other reasons that maybe we'll get into later, but that does, it does seem like it could be convenient for, for limiting the number of mutations or limiting the opportunities for, for dangerous mutations to arise. So since we're, we're talking more and more about the vaccine with every, it, with every step of this conversation, we can get there in earnest in a minute. But one last topic I have about mutations that I wanted to discuss is we know just from like the fact that it's, it's a virus, we have some idea about how viruses work, that it would mutate. That's obvious. Um, it would mutate in random ways. That's obvious. And some of those would probably be bad in some way or other, whether it would be more severe or it would be easier to transmit. It, 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 to me, this all seems obvious. And maybe this is I admit this is all obvious to me on January 6, 2021. I wasn't thinking about this stuff in April or June or September because I had no reason to, but it seems like to people who were thinking about it, who have, you know, a hundred times more relevant knowledge than I do, it should have been obvious to them too. So am I right in saying we should have expected somewhere, somehow a more transmissible version of the virus to, to develop and should, should our approach to containing the virus have been different knowing that? I mean, should there have been like a, a margin of safety in, in our targets for RT where we knew even if one, if, if 1.0 was sort of good enough for now, should we have known that it wasn't always going to be good enough? Yeah, I think this is just one more reason. Uh, we and we did the episode on R and and this this kind of dangerous exponent of them all. And you know, one point we talked about is that it's really hard to measure in the first place what R is at any given time, and certainly what it is today. Um, and that's one source of uncertainty. And then there's uncertainty about how much different measures affect are, how that will change over time as compliance with those measures changes, throw into the mix the possibility of mutation and greater transmissibility. And it is a very dangerous game to play with a dangerous exponent to try to keep it finely balanced at or just below one, because you don't actually know if that's where it is. And you certainly don't know if that's where it's going to be. And the countries that can feel most secure that they have the, the greatest margin for 
even you know a period of a few weeks or a month of of increase in cases are the ones that didn't take any chances and drove things all the way down to zero. Um, didn't necessarily drive R down to zero, but drove cases down to near zero. So if you are suddenly increasing even significantly, but you're starting from near zero, then you have some time to detect the spread and potentially stem it before it's out of control and, and trace new cases and so on. And so it, it's when you say, shouldn't we have some countries, some places did but most didn't because of social and economic pressures and political. Yeah, and that's a good point. I, I use the word we a lot and I, I hate it every time I hear it come out of my mouth because it means something different every time. Um, it's, it, I hate it when it comes out of everyone else's mouth too because it's so unclear. So I'm trying to say things like, like nations or states or scientific authorities or some of them are still kind of, uh, kind of waffling, but it's better to be specific about who has agency in this situation because we implies that you and I, Carl, are part of that. And usually in terms of decision-making, we're not, which is probably for the best. Uh, maybe occasionally it'd be better if we did. But but that's a good point that that some some societies have, have driven their R numbers very, very low. And on, on that topic, we have these countries that are basically back to normal. I mean, New Zealand has, has been very careful. Uh, Taiwan has got cases very close to zero and they're very aggressive about, uh, about stopping outbreaks when they happen. Uh, but with a more, a more dangerous or transmissible variant, then should those places be changing what they're doing? I mean, it does, does the risk of something that's 50% more likely to spread does, does it make the test trace isolate less likely to work, stop and, and, and stop an outbreak before it really gets started in places like that? Less likely, sure. But I think they, they start with so many advantages. I, you know, it's the idea of what is called an outbreak in, in countries that have had so much success is often a cluster of five cases or something. And the, the ability to actually trace and isolate all, all the contacts of five people um, when you're not also fighting a pandemic in the rest of the country affecting tens or hundreds of thousands or, or more is, is so doable, is so attainable. So uh, I still like those countries' chances given the current uh, risks of the, of the mutations we're currently focused on. I, you know, we'd have to see what comes next. I mean, one thing that I haven't seen explicitly said about these mutations, but could be a concern for future ones too, is can people be more likely to be reinfected now? I mean, we've heard that the vaccine probably works against these mutations, although it's not like that was part of any of the tests. But um, the immune response from getting infected isn't exactly the same. And whether that's enough for these mutations, it might not be for future ones. Yeah, and that's a good segue to talking more specifically about the vaccine. Like we do have the, the basic understanding that of the mutations we've seen so far, there, there's not really any reason to suspect that the vaccine will become less effective. Uh, I, I saw one estimate that the it takes five to seven years for the common flu to, to mutate to where it, it, it the vaccines need to, are no longer effective against it. Uh, so, I mean, those, those vaccines are being continually updated. I'm sure in the coming years, the COVID vaccines will be continually updated and they'll change as well. But at this point, 
in terms of stopping the in stopping the spread, the vaccine is. We can talk about the vaccine as being as effective as we were talking about it before we'd heard of B one one seven. That's fair, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So so okay. We, let's let's officially shift focus on the rollout of the vaccine, which has really dominated the news for at least the last few weeks. Maybe it should have been dominating the news well before that, as we'll we'll get into. But uh, countries, states, officials are all struggling on how to get the vaccine into into as many arms as possible, into the right arms, uh, whatever that that should mean. And it's fair to say that the knowing about these mutations and the risk of, of faster spread has added even more immediacy to these issues. So, do you think, Carl, are are countries and states like ch changing their approach, or should they be changing their approach based on what we know about the new mutations? I mean, I suppose it makes an even stronger case for. Uh, vaccinating as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, especially if there's a way to get the vaccines that have been distributed but haven't actually been administered, if to get those into people who are most likely to spread. I think the focus rightly has been on the people who are facing the greatest risk and are at the greatest, uh, you know, the greatest importance for the healthcare system. Uh, administering the healthcare system, but with the with the fear now that an already widespread uh, pandemic could become quickly much more widespread, that may be a case for for trying to attack R more directly, at least in the short term, uh, which could also play into the potential existing strengths of the systems that um, are that currently exist for distributing things like flu shots or COVID tests. I mean, we do have these existing infrastructures to get things out to people widely to help, you know, stem the spread of respiratory illnesses and, and, and have surveillance. And we haven't really been calling on those yet, but uh, potentially the mutation could make, could add to the case for doing that. So, so yeah, let's talk about the infrastructure. As you say, uh, some of the infrastructure exists. There's a way to get millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people a year a flu shot. Um, you know, obviously not with the same immediacy, but it happens. Uh, we've been doing very, very large scale testing, maybe not large scale enough, but still in terms of sheer numbers, very, very large scale testing for months now. Uh, yet, as you say, the actual rollout of the, of let's call it the last mile problem in the, in the coronavirus vaccine of getting shots into arms has been really slow. And mostly we're talking about the US, but it's been very slow in, in Europe as well. I mean, really outside of Israel, I think it's been too slow everywhere. Um, and we can talk about Israel a little later on, but what, what do you think is the main bottleneck? I mean, what is, what is stopping this effective disease curtailing mechanism from actually being put into place? My hunch, and to re re just to repeat the disclaimer you said at the beginning, we are really not experts here, but my hunch is that the chief source of the bottleneck is the prioritization. Basically, who should get it first? And specifically, let's make sure 
we've tried our damnedest to get everyone in those groups vaccinated before we get anyone in other groups vaccinated. And that is that is a rough description of what's happening. Even in, in the US, not, not every state, every state gets to choose basically how to take on or not take on CDC recommendations for priorities. Other countries have their own systems. But you know, my initial there's been a lot of coverage in in the U.S., which I've been watching as an American, of um, failures on the part of the federal government, failures on the part of states. But then you look and you see there isn't much pattern to how states are doing. Pretty much every state is not really getting the vaccines out at a, at a very fast rate. And then you look internationally, and the U.S. isn't actually ranked that low, and among other countries that are trying to get vaccines out and into people. And the country that everyone is citing, Israel, seems to not be following the prioritization as strictly. And if you think about this theoretically, if you took 300 some million Americans and you line them up in a row and you insisted on only giving the vaccine to the second person after the first person got it and so on, I mean, that would just be an infinite process because you would constantly be adding, you'd be adding people to the back of the line way faster than you'd be getting through people at the front in the right order. And we're not doing that to that extent, but the, it does seem like trying to do something like that within groups is, is really tying things up among the first groups, which happen to be in places that aren't necessarily equipped for, for doing these kinds of mass vaccination programs, let alone one that has the specific challenges of this one. Yeah, the way you describe doing the tiers one by one reminds me of how we board airplanes, which I don't think anyone really likes. We can argue about whether it's the most effective way to board airlines and, or airplanes and get very, very off topic very quickly. But the reason that works to the extent it does is because everyone's already there right? You're, you're sitting in the waiting room and you're, you're going to go stand around in the right place probably before your row is called, but you can literally line everybody up and then the, the airline can put people on the plane in exactly the order they want to. And the current situation could not be farther from, from that analogy. I mean, yes, people will line up for the coronavirus vaccine, but not everyone is going to line up. So what you described, Carl, I think I, I totally agree that a big part of the bottleneck is, is the, the desire to, to vaccinate people in a certain order. And you said in that, that it, it, you seem to be saying that we need to get a, around that somehow, but you also said we need to do our damnedest to, uh, to vaccinate the people who we think should be vaccinated first. Uh, I mean, is there a way to reconcile those two to just speed up the process, but also make sure we get the vaccines in the right arms as a first or second step? Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say the second that we need to do our damnedest. I mean, I, don't, I think in terms of prioritizing to, to double the use of prioritizing, prioritizing what happens now, get, getting people in, you know, nursing home settings and, uh getting healthcare workers vaccinated is an important priority, but it's probably not as important as making sure that all the vaccines that are distributed are, are actually administered as quickly as possible. And also to have a system that monitors things. So if suddenly you're using up all of your vaccine and there's no new supply on the horizon, then you've probably shifted too quickly. So you need to have some flexibility and good data 
and those have both been shortcomings. But to answer your question more directly, like how can we try to reconcile these priorities? There are some creative ideas. I, I'm not, you know, I, it's not my job in, in real life to come up with, with clever um, product solutions, but there are sort of analogies that people could draw. And I've seen the suggestion for my old boss, Nate Silver, of like a standby system. So I raise my hand and say, I am available to be on standby and I promise I will be you know, at this place within this much notice or immediately respond that I can't. Um, you mentioned getting on planes and, and so it's a good analogy. One that came to my mind was you, uh, for desirable sports or, or music tickets, you, you often have tiers and the first, or maybe they're not called tiers, but you have like groups or, or bands and the, the first of those groups can have the first dibs, but it only lasts for a few days. And if there's any left, then the second group has dibs and so on. It's a little difficult to do that with vaccines that are being kept at a certain temperature and come in, in kind of large batches. Um, but some idea of that, that, you know, give, give group one a week or two week head start and then start administering the ones that they haven't used yet to group two and so on. And, everyone gradually joins the queue and it doesn't take six months, but maybe it takes six weeks until anyone is fair game to be vaccinated. So what I find most fascinating here is, is we're both relying pretty heavily on, on analogies that are, are not from the world of public health. And partly that's because we are not personally from the world of public health, but also because we're thinking about something that's, that's, really unprecedented. I mean, you can talk about the other vaccination campaigns in, in the fairly distant past, but for the most part, this is unprecedented in, in scale and scope. So we talk about things like, like boarding an airplane, like selling tickets to sporting events or, or concerts. And it's possible that those ideas are more useful than trying to scale up the ideas of people who know how to run vaccination campaigns. And I, I don't mean to, to belittle what those people know, it's enormously valuable right now. But it, I, I kind of wonder if this is a case for, I don't wanna say small government because that carries a whole range of political implications with it, but I'm gonna say small government anyway, with that caveat that we have these, these enormous, um, enormous bureaucracies to handle certain things. And we can talk about whether the CDC has done a good job or not, but we rely on, on certain bureaucracies to accomplish these things. And we've handed over a lot of the logistics to Operation Warp Speed, which has a military component. We would assume the military to be good at logistics. But when I, when I read about these big unprecedented problems in the past, let's say go back, go back 60, 80 more years when the government was a lot smaller, when something unprecedented happened, the government had to seek help from outside of the government, just uh, by necessity. Like the expertise wasn't there within government and it wasn't, there was no approximation of it within government. So you'd have to find, you know, the, the MIT professor who, who knew about ballistics for developing certain weapons for the army, or you'd, you'd go to advertising or apparently camouflage was first developed in, in part by zoologists. So you had to find the expertise and use it. And I, I can't help but think that if, if holding a whole bunch of stuff equal, if we were doing this the way we did it 60 or 80 years ago, then 
Nate Silver would be at the table. I mean, maybe in a sense, Nate Silver is already at the table because he has you know so many Twitter followers and his ideas do filter up. But in people like that would be at the at the decision making table or at least the brainstorming table in a different way than than they are now. I mean, and and do you think there's some validity to that 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 maybe we're relying on bureaucracies for things that they're they're not entirely capable of doing or someone else could do better at this point? I agree with part of it. I, I think we have small government right now. I think government's been gutted. And some of it is because of giant declines in, in local and state tax revenue because of the pandemic. And some of it is, you know, deliberate gutting over, over the years. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of, criticism of local governments for slowing down their activity on vaccination around the holidays. It takes money to pay people to, to work the holidays. It's not, it's not, it's, these aren't volunteers. Um, these are jobs. I do think, you know, tapping into other capabilities and, and public private partnerships are, are important here. And we know about you know, what the, sort of the power of capitalism to create um, incentives for incredibly efficient and powerful systems of distribution. I mean, if somehow Coca-Cola or ex-Coca-Cola executives could be tapped on how to, how to solve the last mile problem and how to, how to distribute to places that seem hard to distribute. Um, I mean, I think public health officials and public health generally already does a lot of public-private partnership. And, and I understand why you're calling it unprecedented, but I come back to the COVID tests, which have not been a simple or fast or totally successful rollout in the US, but nonetheless are being done at a rate that is way higher than we saw earlier in the, in the pandemic. Uh, and, and that involves a lot of private enterprise. The flu vaccine, you know, involves a very strong partnership with health insurance companies and with, um, with uh, pharmacies, and, and there is a lot of infrastructure in place for that. And, you know, I think in general, in, in healthcare in the US, we accept, or at least it exists, and we haven't changed it yet, that in most cases, we, we're not getting a certain kind of health test or care to the people who need it most in some kind of prioritization order. But, and therefore by not doing that, we do get it to a lot of people. And sometimes we can do that quickly. Um, and that sort of the high profile of this case has, has made it more political than uh, maybe is useful for maximizing the the speed of, of distribution. So, this is not a, a, a perfect segue, but it's something I really wanted to talk about. And hopefully the relationship will become evident quickly. Uh, the, you've probably heard the phrase that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And it's come up at in all sorts of different ways throughout this, this pandemic that certain tests aren't approved because they're not accurate enough, but it probably would have been useful to have approximate tests uh, earlier on or in greater numbers. Um, the 
maybe people are afraid of taking a certain vaccine because it's only X percent effective when they'd want something that's 100 percent effective, uh, more relevant right now. There's there are these various ideas about stretching the vaccine supply. Uh, like Britain's talking about mix and match. Um, the Operation Warp Speed is talking about using half doses or first doses first. Uh, all of these things are not perfect. No one is saying they are perfect, but they might have have benefits. And, and I'm wondering, do you think that's, that's something that I mean, I, I guess I don't, I don't know how we and there's the horrible word we again, um, I I don't know how you get around that, but is there a way to approach this, this whole enormous set of problems where we can think better about what's good and less about what's not perfect? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that goes to the prioritization that we've been talking about. And it's, it's definitely true with COVID testing already. I mean, it's just the reality that there are there are giant differences in how long it takes to get the result, which is not the number you usually hear about. You usually hear about accuracy, but that itself has an effect, but it's still better to take a test, even not knowing how long it'll take to get the result. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the strengths of American healthcare, and, and I think of healthcare in many places is the recognition in a sort of emergency setting, a trauma setting, ICU, that the perfect can never be the enemy of the good. And you have to try a lot of things. You're not sure what's going to work. And we saw that in the early days of the pandemic, the death rates were much higher. And through basically trying different things, uh, doctors, nurses, others in hospitals were able to, to figure out ways to drive the death rate down. And I, I think this is an emergency on a, on a giant scale. And some, you know, some people sort of by the nature of their job and the nature of their training are going to have trouble coming out and saying, let's try this thing that hasn't been tested in a random randomized controlled trial. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right answer public health wise when, you know, the alternative potentially to trying something different with the vaccination rollout is leaving people unvaccinated at a time of a, an enormous and spreading pandemic. Yeah, at the risk of being painfully repetitive across multiple episodes, it's all about trade-offs. It's always about trade-offs. And every time that you say, we don't have a randomized control trial on this and thus we shouldn't do it, then you're talking about some benefits that go unreceived. I mean, yes, there may be dangers to, to drifting from the approved script, but there's dangers to doing what we're doing now. And as, you, as we see the case counts and death counts go up every day, I mean, there's, there's enormous dangers to just sticking to what we're doing now or sticking to what's safe. So um, it's, it's, it's a huge topic to think about how we should tackle these problems when, when we don't have perfect data. But if there's one thing missing or, or something that has been missing throughout the whole pandemic, it seems like that might be the biggest one. This, this willingness to admit that there are certain trade-offs, this willingness that we're going to have to move forward without perfect information. Uh, and then it's what we should do. It, it's, it, it's not that we're, we're being forced into certain decisions, but it is the right thing to do to figure out what these trade-offs are and, uh, and what benefits can be gleaned even without perfect information. Um, so Carl, before I, before I close the door on you, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think first, just to emphasize your point that 
it's it's always easier, especially politically, to do nothing. So we don't always see the trade-offs there, but they are nonetheless there. Also, if you're going to try something untested, then also test it while you're doing it and have good, reliable, and up-to-date data and the flexibility to, to react to it. So if it turns out that delaying the second dose, mixing and matching, you know, other ideas for, for getting more people vaccinated faster, if it turns out it's backfiring, make sure you have a mechanism in place to find out. And then always try to get informed consent. I think there are a lot of people who would be willing to get vaccinated sooner if it meant getting vaccinated in an unconventional way and try to, try to get to those people. And you know that, that's another thing that healthcare has developed as an infrastructure is, is one of consent, although it's sometimes you know, signing the last page of five uh, small font pages, but at least we do have a system in place for that. Yeah, those are all all good points to, to end on. Um, and and of course, it always comes back to us for for, for better record keeping and, and better data, because there's so many people out there who probably want to help want to contribute something to this effort. And if if the data were freely available, they could they could do it in, in their sweatpants and their spare time in their home office. And um, without the data, it's impossible. And these ideas do filter up. So uh, the more the more data is out there, the more even imperfect experiments can be run or imperfect studies can be done in as close to real time as possible. So it feels like we can't have an episode of Dangerous Exponents and we should not have an episode of this show without pleading for more better data from all possible sources. So Carl, as always, thank you for joining me for this. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been Dangerous Exponents. You can find all of our episodes uh, at dangerousexponents.com. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. So feel free to send us your, your thoughts, your effusive compliments and so on. And, um, and stay tuned probably in a, in a week or so's time for another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>